0: You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha, and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about business and innovation. This session was originally broadcast on March 17th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Q&A about business and innovation. And uh, looks like we have all kinds of interesting questions here. Um, There's one from Dan or Dane. Uh, this is a simple one. I'm going to start with one that's that's simple, he says, famous last words. Uh, how did Champaign, Illinois become the base of operations of our company? Well, our company is about... 800 employees, roughly, and those 800 people are, are pretty scattered around the world. So, you know, one of the things that I felt almost a little guilty about with respect to this pandemic is that it really didn't have a big effect on the operations of our company um, because we were have been working have people who worked remotely for uh, close to 30 years now, um, including myself. But okay, the, the history of this. And sort of a choice of locations question is uh, how did the company wind up being in Champagne? Well, the first company I started, I started when I was working at Caltech in Los Angeles. And that company was in L.A. And uh, it was kind of an annoying driving distance from, uh, uh, from where I lived. It was actually right near the airport, right near L.A. International Airport, LAX. I noticed the, the road... Um, uh, every time I drive into LAX airport, I'll, I'll notice the building that we used to have, which had a, had a big sign on it back in the day, um, when the company was there, but, um, uh, that was, uh, so was my first kind of, um, uh, observation about companies. And in, in that time, we had some remote employees, mostly salespeople, uh, didn't work out particularly well. In fact, that, that aspect of it, um, then I went back to being, um, uh, uh, sort of an academic. And I worked at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. And, um, uh, uh, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting, but small place. And I was kind of developing this field of complex systems research. And, uh, I was kind of, um, wanted to spread wings more broadly than I really could at the Institute there. Um, and, uh, uh, I definitely like people there who didn't want me to spread wings, even though the director of the place did. Um, but uh, so I, I kind of decided, okay, I'm going to start some research center for complex systems. And this was in 1985 or so. And um, uh, I was like, okay, let me do this in a, in an organized way, and went around and talked to lots of universities about, oh, should I do this research center at your university or not? And it was kind of an interesting kind of personality test for universities, because some universities would say things like, oh, yeah, you know, if you bring in government funding for what you're doing, absolutely come here. We're thrilled to come and take the overhead on the government funding and so on. Or, well, we'd love to hire you personally, but, oh, you want to hire other faculty as well? Oh, no, 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 we don't have slots for those. Or... Uh, well, yes, we'd really love to do this, but our bureaucracy is so complicated that uh, it's gonna take years to work things through. And you can kind of uh, fill in different universities that were uh, sort of the, of the top universities in the US. I, I talked to many of them, perhaps even most of them. And it was interesting, very interesting collection of, of different opportunities and suggestions and, and, and so on. But um, in the end, the university that kind of won that was the University of Illinois, which was both a, a good university and, uh, and, and rather easy to work with, um, even though it was a little bit complicated because it was a state university and I was taking the point of view that um, uh, if I was going to develop technology and so on, that was kind of off limits for what I was doing as a professor, so to speak. And so it was kind of my, my, my sort of structure of, of what I was saying to these universities is look, you know, I'm coming to start this basic research, research center and be a professor and so on. I also have this hobby of doing technology and companies and things like that. And that hobby is not what you're hiring me to do. So if you think that's what you're hiring me to do, then don't hire me, so to speak. And uh, in the case of University of Illinois, uh, they took the position that that was merely an interpretation of their normal policies, whether that's really true or not is a is an interesting matter for debate. And um, I spent a certain amount having some uh, uh, intellectual property lawyer work with them to kind of uh, write something, which was which they took as an interpretation. I said, I don't care if it's an interpretation or not, but it's the document that um, that I'm using, so to speak. So, in any case, ended up in 1986 going to University of Illinois to start the Center for Complex Systems Research and to be a professor in the physics, math, and computer science departments. Um, I'm still a a deep adjunct, I would say, professor in those departments. Um, Although I I will admit that I haven't done too much um, uh, with them for a very long time. But uh, University of Illinois, I must give it credit for the fact that it did live up to its promises. It's it's like, we're gonna have this number of positions, we're gonna have this initial funding, we're gonna have this building and so on. This all happened. Uh, the only problem was that I quickly realized that I was not a great match for somebody who was running a unit at a university since, you know, my main interests were getting things to happen and doing research myself. And both of these were not really consistent with, oh, you know, you've got to fit into this big organization. Um, I, I don't think I'm a, I'm a great big organization's uh, cog in the machine type person. Um, I kind of quickly realized when, when uh, I think one of the one of the the defining moments was some uh, uh, meeting to discuss some inviting some speaker for some uh, uh, lecture series or something, and it's like, uh, look guys, you know I came up with this list of people, and they said, no no no, you don't understand, you know we got to have this series of five meetings to discuss this, and I'm like, no you don't. You all agree that the people I've suggested are, uh, you know, are quite sensible. And people, are, yeah, yeah, they're quite sensible. It's like, well, let's just make a decision, move on. It's like you don't understand. That's not how it works in academia. And it's like, yeah, you're probably right. I don't understand. This is probably not the place for me. Type thing. Um, but that was that was one of the the places where I realized that. But um, you know, in the end, I think uh, in the end, I think we've had a great relationship with the University of Illinois for many years. Um, and I think, you know, we were able to bring in some, uh, for that Center for Complex Systems Research, bring in some interesting faculty who wouldn't uh, normally have gone there. And I think we were able to start an interesting operation. But I very quickly realized that I personally was not particularly well suited to, to running such a thing. And so my kind of plan B, uh, I had initially had sort of the plan with this kind of complexity research of of. of crowdsource it get the world to do this kind of complexity research i'd started off now it's time for the world to do its thing but it turned out to be and perhaps it's just not my expertise it turned out to be very difficult to get the world to kind of start its engines and just take it away do all this stuff i have to say we're doing a lot better with the physics project now uh 30 something years later um you know times have changed uh, topic is somewhat different and, and, and better defined and so on. But that's working much better in terms of here's this, here's this thing. Okay, world, now take it away and make exciting things happen with it. But anyway, so I tried to do that with kind of complexity. And my way of making that happen was starting this Research Center and a journal called Complex Systems, which still, still exists um, and so on. But I quickly realized that this wasn't probably the best picture for me. And so kind of plan B was, okay, I'll uh, start um, uh, something which can create the tools that I need to be able to do the things that I want to do in terms of research and science, and also a practical company that provides an environment for me to uh, do interesting things that can actually turn into reality in the world, so to speak. And so that's why in, in, uh, within a few weeks of actually finally arriving in uh, Champaign, Illinois, as um, to start the Center for Complex Systems Research, I'd sort of decided, actually, I'm, I'm going to start this company. Um, and uh, so it was natural to start it there. Now, I have to say, a year and a half in, uh, we'd started the company, things were up and running. I considered maybe we should move the company somewhere else. And I considered the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, because it's like, well, there's a lot of tech companies there. I had considered back in in 1981, I'd actually sort of identified Stanford as a university that seemed like it was in a nice location. And that time it wasn't such a distinguished university. Um, And uh, so I considered working there and they offered me some position, but I didn't completely like it. And it was, um, I ended up not going there, but I'd always sort of thought, you know, the Bay Area is is an interesting place. Of course, the Bay Area has gone through several ups and downs in history. Um, it's, it's, well, I don't know whether it's an up or down right now, but in terms of the number of companies that are there, it certainly is still an up. Um, I think that the, uh, uh, so I considered about, probably about 18 months in, I considered maybe I should move the company to the Bay Area. We had few enough employees. It was a realistic thing to consider doing. And so I went out there and I, I was like, okay, let me check out um, different areas. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of telling a funny story here, but, but um, uh, I thought, look, the actual San Francisco, well, the peninsula uh, is sort of overcrowded and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and expensive and so on. Uh, city of San Francisco wasn't really on the map as a tech place yet at that time. And I thought, let's be clever. Let's find a place that's really nearby, but is not as expensive and fancy and so on. So I thought Half Moon Bay, which is on the coast, uh, sort of over uh, from. Um, uh, from, from, I'm, I'm gonna get my geography wrong here, but it's kind of um, uh, over to the Pacific side of, of um, uh, the, the peninsula. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna go out there and check it out. And it was you know, full of pumpkin fields and so on. It was nice and rural. And it was completely overcast and a terrible dreary day. And I think that's what uh, convinced me that no, this wasn't a good place to move the company. There were other things too. But that was uh, kind of, um, uh, you know, I considered doing that. I'm really glad I didn't do that because Champaign, Illinois, has been a terrific place to have the headquarters of our company. Um, you know, we, we've got other operations in different places. And as I say, we've got a lot of people just sort of scattered around the world, including myself. But um, uh, it was it really has been a, a terrific location. Uh, why? Well, the... Uh, Uh, It's a nice town where it's not too expensive, you know, as a result of it's kind of a victim of our own success, so to speak. Uh, We may have been a contributor to the economic prosperity of the area. And that's meant that, um, but it's still the case that, you know, houses are comparatively cheap. People who we pay, uh, you know, somewhat modestly can still afford houses, things like this. Um, It's a... uh, It, for a long time, was pretty close to the median cost of living for the U.S., Uh, whereas, for example, the San Francisco Bay Area is probably 2.5 times, 2 to 2.5 times the median. New York City, maybe 2.5 to 3 times, and so on. Um, So it was uh, kind of an affordable kind of place, but yet a rather international, uh, rather intellectual kind of place because of the fact that there was a large and good university there. Um, And so really i would say that we uh, in terms of uh, people coming to the company um there were, we've had a lot of international people for whom it's a, it's a good place to come in the us and a lot of people from the midwest people who say that some people who you know really love the coasts and um they uh, you know they're always going to live on the coasts um and they consider the the center of the country to be you know the flyover area, so to speak. Um, and those people won't come to, to live in, 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 in that area. Um, you know, I think they're missing things, but uh, that's a different different issue. Um, I myself haven't lived in that area for, for 30 years now for a variety of reasons. Um, I have found as in terms of my own kind of personal effectiveness, I think being a remote CEO is probably more effective than being a wander around the office CEO. And certainly the culture of our company as a distributed company is one that has lent itself to productivity um, for for everybody, uh, including for me. Um, But I think the the other thing that is really, has been very nice about um, uh, Champaign, Illinois as a location for a company, I would say it has some um, good, if I'm to, to sort of generalize, it has a good work ethic more so than you find, for example, particularly in something like the Bay Area. You know, a a typical model, if you're a company in the Bay Area, is well, my employees, you know, if they don't like what's going on here, they're just going to go to another company in the same building, or they're just going to go down the street and go sign up for another company. Um, You know, that's not the ethos of of what we have in, in, in Illinois. There is a decent amount of, of tech stuff there, but for whatever reason, it's not the kind of uh, the, um, the, the point of view, I think, of people there. It, uh, there's a slightly longer term viewpoint, at least that's my perception. And um, it's really been a, uh, just an excellent place for, to have as the, as the headquarters of the company, um, recognizing that there's a lot of geo distribution of different people who move to different places for whatever reason. So that, that's the, the long answer. Um, uh, somebody's asking, why haven't I lived in, in Champaign? Uh, originally, because back in 1991, I thought I was going to go off and uh, separate myself a bit from the company to work on a big basic science project. And I moved at that time to California, actually. Um, and uh, the, that year, year and a half stretched into 10 years then I moved back uh, my, uh, by that point I had, um, uh, you know, my wife wasn't as keen on, on, the, um, on champagne as I was. And um, uh, I, um, uh, I also felt that by being not physically at the company every day, I would be able to get more, more productive things done. And so I ended up moving uh, to the Chicago area, lived there for quite a number of years, and eventually decided kind of we can live anywhere and um, uh, where's the place where I kind of know more people than anywhere else. And the winner of that was the Boston area. Number two was San Francisco for me, number three was London. Um, and uh, so I've, I've lived in the Boston area now for, uh, what is it, 18, 19 years now. Um, so let's see. Um, all right, questions, more, more pragmatic business questions. And I, I see a lot of these, but question from Smishy here. Is it a doable thing to work at a university and run a startup at the same time? Um, don't know, people seem to do it a bunch now. Uh, when I started doing it back in 1981, It was sort of not a known thing and it was there was a lot of tension around it um i would say that that it really depends on how enlightened or not university is um it really depends on how serious or not a startup you have it depends on how central a person you are to that startup you know one of the things i found interesting over time is there was a time when people would say you know you're going to be a ceo the, there's no way you're going to be a CEO of more than one company. It's just crazy to think about being a CEO of more than one company. Just don't even think about it. And then, you know, Steve Jobs kind of did that between Pixar and Next. And then, um, uh, you know, people have done it. I don't know, Elon Musk does it between, well, several companies, SpaceX and Tesla and so on. Um, it's uh, it's it's really kind of interesting that that's become a thing that's, that people consider to be, okay, yeah, you can do that. Um, it's, uh, uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I mean, we have multiple companies because of different kinds of things we do. And yes, I'm the CEO of multiple, uh, multiple of these. And um, uh, yes, it is a doable thing. Now, between academia and, the, uh, and companies, you know, I think the thing to understand is there are different goals of doing a startup and being in academia. And if you want to spend some of your time, you know, writing papers, supervising students, teaching classes, and some of your time trying to build products and trying to, uh, kind of, um, uh, do the kinds of things that are typical in a startup, then that's fine. But if you try and mix those two together, I suspect it's a formula for trouble. I mean, I think that, um, the whole, oh, let me get my students to work on my startup, I don't know, that's, uh, that tends to lead to all kinds of trouble. I mean, it may be done with the best of intentions and even the best of results for some students, but I think it's something which has to be done with some care or you end up with all kinds of weird and crazy situations of, you know, um, am I going to have my, my uh, vice president of whatever, am I going to pass them in their qualifying exam or not? Um, you know these things will get get too weird too quickly. Um, I think that uh, in terms of um, uh, you know the when you do a in the startup phase of a startup, there is a time when it is I, I've never seen it not be really quite intense. And you know to go and show up and teach a class you've been teaching for years. Yeah, okay, you can probably do that. To really dig in and be intense about what you're doing at the university? Probably not. I mean, when I started our company, I was uh, a professor at University of Illinois. And uh, it was a little bit bizarre because I was working on both the technical side of our company and a bunch of the business side of our company. And I was like, uh, you know, okay, I'm going to make it back from my trip to Silicon Valley or something just in time for my class about whatever else. And, um, uh, it was a little bit of a, just a weird thing. I, it felt a bit Indiana Jones like as in, uh, you know, you're teaching the archeology span class and then you're going kind of into action, uh, you know, the next day type thing. And it was, it was a little bit strange because people, I was teaching at some point a class about, um, computation and things. And, uh, people were asking me all these things about different computer companies and all this kind of thing. And, uh, I think, at some point they kind of realized that, yeah, I was actually involved in this industry, and so then they started asking for stock tips and so on, which was kind of fun but um uh I just thought it was a it was a strange clash of worlds which i don't think was was completely supportable in the end um and uh I have to say, okay, I, I will have to tell a story here the The very end of my time as a professor um the, I had been teaching a class about physics for non-scientists, which I thought would be a lot more fun than it actually turned out probably to be. Um, but at the end of that class, I was was just before, uh, yeah, just before version one, maybe even yeah, right before version one of Mathematica was released, and there had been some uh, news articles about our our work. And there was a one that I think was had a headline. It was in like Forbes or Fortune or something. It was had a headline some, saying something like physics whiz goes into biz. And it had some some picture of me eating an ice cream, I think. Um, but in any case, that, um, uh, that article had just come out. I decided at the end of this class that I was teaching, I decided to have a kind of a, uh, an ending party for the students who'd, who'd come to this class. So I have this. This party, it wasn't a very successful party. The students didn't really say very much, but um, somebody who was working with me at the time decided okay, just to liven things up, they would make a bunch of copies of this article that just came out like that day or something and um, uh, just you know, bring it in and hand it out to the students. So they did that, and uh, you know, these students go around and they're reading this article, um, and uh, uh eventually, one, one guy who is sort of the the typical you know, fraternity pattern person with the, you know, the baseball hat on backwards and things. I don't know whether they still do that, but um, uh, was kind of says to me, looks up, says to me, hey, with all this stuff going on out there, what on earth are you doing teaching college? So I was like, yeah, this is probably the last time I'm going to do this. Um, and uh, anyway, I, I have to say, um, I've actually heard from some, some students who were in that class that I taught Uh, many years later. And that was, that's been very nice. But in any case, um, uh, all right, let's, um, let's go back to, um, uh, okay, there's some much more practical questions here, and I want to address some of them. Um, Well, there's one, okay, one from Praveen, at a pre-revenue stage, should a company aim for reaching revenue faster at the expense of cash or saving cash in order to survive a little longer at the expense of time and market opportunity? Well, gosh, I mean, that depends so much on what you're doing, where the cash is coming from, why you need the cash, all those kinds of things. Uh, you know one point is, what is the time frame that you're aiming for when you start a company? Is this something you're going to do for the rest of your life? Or are you, do you want to be, or are you already a serial entrepreneur where at some point you're going to say, I've done seven companies, you know, which of those models are you adopting? If you're going for the serial entrepreneur mode and you're kind of like five years per company, um, that's, you know, there's one set of optimizations. If you're like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. It's a different set of optimizations. Um, I think that in the uh, uh in the this is this is the five year plan, I think sort of timing of opportunities and so on that's the critical thing i mean you know if you hit if you're doing an nFt startup do it now, so to speak. don't wait two years and then do it uh, I think that the um, um you know it, it's it's there are things where there's sort of a tide a tide that happens in the world of things where, yes, if this is going to be a sort of standard startup, it's like, yes, the venture capitalists are going to be excited about that right now. Employees are going to be excited about that now. Customers are going to be looking for it, et cetera. Now, now sometimes it's a little bit of a, a, a weird thing, because sometimes the hype in the world is way ahead of the customers that exist. I mean, there are plenty of areas, whether it's, you know, XR, Kinds of things, or IoT kinds of things, or uh, even blockchain kinds of things. Although that worked differently, it had its own different dynamic because of ICOs, um, where sort of the the hype is significantly ahead of the customers and the real revenue. And in you know, so so kind of if if you're in a in a business where that's happening, it's like yes, you can raise money, but it's really hard to make money because there just aren't yet customers or the whole ecosystem has not developed to the point where there are. And, and so sometimes, you know, there are, there are companies where their biggest skill is raising money, and they'll raise more and more and more rounds of money. And that's what they're effectively doing. What do they make? They make stock that they sell to people. Um, I mean, that's a little bit of a cynical thing to say, but I think that's, uh, that's been a pattern. It's even been a pattern with tech companies that have gotten very big. Um, I think the model, which is not really favored in the tech industry, certainly not among investors in the tech industry, is let's go and make money by making money. Um, Let's go and actually sell stuff to people and bring in revenue and and make money kind of the old fashioned way. I mean, for, for most tech companies that are sort of investor funded, it's very much the model of, you know, shovel in investor money, you know, work very hard. Make you know, make lots of noise, and well, will you know, if we've built up enough uh, visibility, enough kind of eyeballs or something, then then revenue will follow later. Uh, different model. Um, so I think um, uh, uh, the question of of whether you kind of um, burn down cash to generate revenue. I mean, that's a detailed question that depends on what your investor pipeline looks like and so on. I mean, sometimes, okay, so here's here's an example of something people do. It's like, okay, you've got this thing and uh, can you sort of spend money to make money by selling it, so to speak? You've got a thing and left to its own devices. If you just put it up on websites, you did the obvious social media stuff, nobody's yet going to buy it. It's going to be a slow ramp that might take a couple of years. But by sort of spending enough money, by putting enough ads in in front of people, by having, you know, commission sales folk and so on be on the phone selling things, then yes, you can make money by spending money. You know, does it work to do that? My observation is I've seen a bunch of companies fail trying to do that. Because what happens is you can essentially buy sales by by these kinds of devices. You can, you can just get, you know, by the time you've called enough people, some of them are gonna buy something, but it's awfully expensive to call all those people. And the margins are negative typically in doing that. And so, you know, I, I personally think that strategy, uh, you know, it, it may be something that looks good for some investor purpose. It seems like a mistake to me to kind of, you know, to just buy sales in that kind of way. Um, I think the most extreme case was a company that was at one time a, um, uh, well, a wannabe competitor of ours a very long time ago, eventually went public in a disastrous IPO. But anyway, one of the things that they did, I think, is um, they decided that they would, um, they really wanted to buy sales. And so they uh, essentially bought a 5 million piece direct mail mailing and um, they sent it all out. I think I got like 30 copies of that mailing. So somebody was kind of cheating them a bit in terms of the actual mailing list and so on. But what they ended up doing was they ended up, uh, how did it exactly work? I think they also had resellers. And somehow they ended up uh, bringing in revenue, making money by selling their product for whatever it was, $400 to people. But actually, oh, that's right, that's right. They were selling it to resellers. and. The resellers were paying them a certain amount of money, but they were providing marketing incentives to those resellers that were at least equal to, if not more than, the actual price that they were selling the product to those resellers for. Probably not really an okay accounting practice. Don't know if it wasn't at the time, or, or, but I don't think it would be now. Um, but so in other words, they were, they were essentially buying sales by literally, you sell it to a reseller and then you pay the reseller more than you sold it to them for. So, you know, it looks, you book that as revenue. It says, it looks like the reseller bought it from me, but well, yeah, there aren't any profits because I spent all this money on marketing. Uh, that marketing was, was sort of a co-op marketing expense, but you actually paid it to the reseller. Uh, probably a very fishy thing to do in, in, in these times. So, uh, there's a question here from, uh, Mitchell, how do you deal with employees who may be very talented and productive, but may find it hard to fit in with the rest of the team? I wonder if it's even possible for large companies to be agile in this respect. I think our company does particularly well at having a real diversity of characters and personalities able to work at the company. I mean, I, I sometimes, um, am, uh, as, a, as a manager of people, it's, um, I am I would say I like people enough that I am amused by the major foibles of, of some of our employees, probably including myself. Um, I think the it's really a question, I suppose, of... Well, it's partly a question of corporate attitude. What really matters is being productive. And the place where you have to plug in to the company culture is you got to make something that we can actually... Uh, you know, fits into what we make as a company. You know, it might be different if what we made was, I don't know, consulting was primarily, let's say, you know, different kinds of consulting services where the different things people deliver might be very dependent on their personality. For us, the things people deliver sort of have to fit into the, the main thing we're building, even also at the, at the level of services we provide. Um, but the ways that people actually do that work can be widely different. And I think it's a question of sort of a, a management to, uh, sort of approach that says it doesn't matter that these people are kind of funky and some are very argumentative and some are very kind of uh, uh, overly agreeable. Um, some uh, don't ask for help as much as they should. Some uh, uh, waste a lot of time because they're always asking for help. Uh, some, uh, you know, are you know incendiary in working with other people. Things like this. Um, I would say that, uh, uh, yes, there is some kind of um, management skill required to kind of, uh, you know, interact with those different kinds of people. I mean, I find for myself that the times of interactions that I will have with people are sometimes very different depending on personality. I mean, there'll be people where I've worked with them for decades and I've never had an aggressive conversation with them. And there are other people where I've also worked with them for a long time and where I regularly have incredibly aggressive conversations with them. And, you know, but both sides kind of understand that's just the the means of communication, so to speak. And uh, it's, um, you know, I think that being able to deal with those different sort of forms of communication is necessary for this. Can that work in large companies? I don't know. I think that there are probably... Uh, I think it's, it depends on kind of the management structure and how siloed things are. And there may very well be parts of those silos that are very, um, you know, that work differently from other parts. I, I don't know. Um, I think that, you know, it follows the general principle of, you know, when you have a company, at least like ours, you have a certain set of people, a certain set of kind of talents, and you have a certain set of projects. And kind of a large part of the role of management is to match those two things up in a sensible way. I mean, I think that the, um, um, uh, you know, there are certainly times in the history of our company where there will be sort of fights of some uh, email kind, let's say, between employees. And um, uh, then it is again, the role of management to kind of try and calm those down. I have to say there are cases where there have been very you know, personal attack type things between people. And my general observation is if there are two people who get into sort of a major attack fest, um, it's often because they didn't have enough, enough else to do. And it's a sad but true fact, both people will be gone within six months uh, for one reason or another. Not because we let them go, but just because they just won't fit in anymore. And uh, and it, it won't continue, and I think that that's. Um, um, but but yeah, I mean that that's a. Again, I don't know what um, what fraction of the how many times a year I end up having to do this, but it's not very many anymore. But but um, you know, people will just get so upset with with um, with somebody. Now, as far as I'm concerned, people getting upset about something to do with what the company does is not necessarily bad, because it means they care which, as far as I'm concerned, is really important. I mean, if somebody says, we're doing the wrong thing, it's, you know, we should be doing it this way. We've got, you know, we picked the wrong technology. We've done the wrong thing. You know, we, we're, we're et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're not emphasizing this enough. And they get very worked up about that. And maybe they have some terrible fight with somebody else about that. Well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really glad they care. I'm really glad everybody cares. And then let's try and sort of unpack the issue and see if we can understand how to make peace, so to speak, and, and uh, usually, that's, usually that's not terribly difficult. Um, sometimes people, one of the things that can happen is people can be back, batting back and forth in email, and they'll sound very, very aggressive in email, and I'll have to tell uh, you know, both people, just pick up the frigging phone and talk to each other, and I will say, oh, yeah, OK, OK, yeah, we resolved it. It's, you know, he's a perfectly reasonable person. Yeah, you know, I, I, I got the wrong idea by, by just seeing these pieces of email. Um, I, certainly, I, I yeah, that, that's been a thing that happens. Um, there's a question here. How do you plan a, a roadmap for our company? Does it just happen naturally or is there deep thought into what, uh, what, You do to make it happen. Well, I think there are several levels of that. In terms of the overall, what is the point? What is the vision? Where are we generally trying to go? Uh, Absolutely, spend a bunch of time thinking about that, and definitely have an overall vision and have had a very consistent vision now for more than thirty years for our company. Then, in terms of uh, how you know, do we set a plan? Okay, let's let's lock in for the next two years. We're doing this. We really don't do as much of that. And the reason is because it's really hard to predict. When you're doing something that's never been done before, it turns out you might get it done in six months. It might take four years. If we say we've got this plan and we're sticking to it and it's going to be a two-year plan, it's like, well, golly, what happens if it doesn't work in two years? You know, you can't make the impossible possible. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's just... so So we don't tend to make those kinds of very rigid plans. Another thing I've noticed is when you say, uh, I, I found it quite often the case that when you imagine a new product, it's like write the marketing page for that product, write a draft to the marketing page, because then you know what you're talking about about that product. Then you actually go build it. Uh, by the way, that, that's similar to in, in designing Wolfram Language. From the very beginning, I was very much a write the documentation first as you're going to explain it to users and then actually build it. But when you go and actually build it, whether it's a product or some piece of functionality in the language, sometimes when you actually use it, it doesn't feel like what you thought it was gonna feel like. You realize, well, actually, that, that wasn't quite the right direction. That's not really the important thing. And so then you have to go back and sort of re, reorient the, the way that you're communicating what's going on. And for me, sometimes it's like, well, Let's uh, let's plan the marketing of this. Uh, you know, plan how we explain it, and we'll plan it months and months in advance. It's usually a mistake because it's only when the thing is really finished that you really know what you have, and and then you can kind of go and and explain it in the best possible way. Rather than well, this is what I thought was going to be important, but once I actually get to use it, I realize actually this other thing is important. So my attitude towards that, which sometimes drives people crazy, but is kind of just wait until almost the last minute to to do the final kind of presentation of what it is that one has. Even though at the very beginning, one sort of thought, this is the direction we're going in. This is what I think we're gonna be able to say about this. Then you actually build it, then you see what you have. Now, in terms of of how one structures some uh, kind of actual projects that go on, that's complicated. And in our company, we have a pretty good infrastructure of project management which is something that we've had for probably 25 years now. Um, and uh, the um, uh, kind of the, the, the thing that has been a challenge for us is, and people would, would joke about it for a long time, is can you make a list of all the projects that are going on at the company? Okay, well, there was a time when uh, various people had tried to make lists and the number of projects was larger than the number of employees. Okay, so that's kind of a bad sign. So finally, now we actually do have good lists. So what are the challenges of making that lists? What one, so, you know, we have a list of probably a couple of hundred projects um, that are sort of in, 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 in various stages. And I'll explain the stages. So the way we do it is there's, oh, I, I should explain. One of the issues in making such a list is what is a project? Like what is something that should be considered a project? It's not add this little line to a website that's that becomes something in our you know project tracking system low-level project tracking system but it's not a strategic level project and so you know there's sort of a question what's a project there's a question of what's a project and what's a process you know like continually expanding the wolfram challenges website let's say that's a process the building of the website in the first place is a project so what we are uh, These days, doing is it's like it's a project at the beginning, and then it becomes a process where every month, every three months, whatever it is, something happens with it, or even every day, people are doing something with it. But it's something where it's a different thing. There's no new thing that has to be conceptualized, it's a thing that's going to keep going. So, in terms of projects, what we tend to do is we'll have a list of potential projects. Then we have various kinds of project review meetings in which projects go in several directions. Uh, One possibility is that a project is under investigation. It's like, can we really do this? Does it really make sense? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's work to be done in the investigation phase. Then the next thing is, okay, we know we want to do it. It makes sense. We have some sense of the resources that are going to be needed. Then we say the project is green-lighted. Okay, so then... But we don't haven't actually allocated resources and maybe the key people who are going to do that project are off doing another project so that project can't be started but it's green-lighted as in we know we want to do that project and then uh when then there's a question of where to find the resources in some cases that has to be queued up behind some other project because it has to wait for that project to finish and so on because the resources uh, overlap and eventually the project is underway once it's underway it has a definite structure of having reviews and things like this um, until it gets to be finished. Um, now, uh, and then we've got various other states to do with what it means to be finished. Another thing that can happen is the project is, gets to be under investigation, and it's like, nah, not now. It doesn't make sense to do this project now. So then we have another category, which is hibernated, um, which is... We will store everything we know about this project but we're not going to do it yet and this project is something that it's been important to us that we've hibernated projects sometimes for years many years and then we bring them back to life we still have all the material from when it was previously figured out it's important to the teams that work on these projects that okay your project you got a certain distance with it but we decided it just wasn't the right project for right now it's going to be hibernated that doesn't mean it's going to be killed in fact very few projects that ever got onto the kind of green-lighted list in the company. I'm trying to think of ones which have actually been killed. I can't think of any that have actually been outright killed. They've been at most hibernated. Now, whether they will ever recover from hibernation, we don't yet know, because it hasn't happened yet, but it's my expectation that all of them will at some point. Um, so, so that's kind of the, um, uh, uh, the, the, the approach. Now, another thing we do is we have these kind of strategic bundles, which are kind of collections of things that fit together for some overall objective and projects aren't strategic bundles. Strategic bundles are separately conceptualized and then have to be connected to projects. So there might be some bundle that's about, I don't know, expanding into emerging fields. Or there might be one about, uh, uh, ex- about um, dealing with existing customers, or there might be one about um, uh, dealing with research organizations or something. These are much more general issues than the specifics of, okay, we're going to build, you know, we're, we're going to build a big computational chemistry system, or we're going to, you know, do more serious work in in uh, uh, some direction of machine learning or something. Uh, so that, that's, um, uh, that's kind of a, a different process, run in a different way with sort of crosstalk to the actual projects that get made. And by the way, the projects I'm describing, these kind of big strategic projects, as I say, each one of those projects, once it's actually underway, gets some, um, uh, I don't know. I, I'm I'm not so deeply involved in these these pieces of the project management system, but the the term gets ticketed, is is a pretty common one. And um, I I I have to say I'm sometimes like ticketed and towed and so on, like with with cars parked in bad places or whatever. But it's like it means it's it's turning into a series of hundreds of specific tasks that will be ticketed in the in the internal project tracking system, so that they can then be uh, be be actually. Uh, done by people and um, where we can watch the progress and confirm that things have been done and so on. Okay, there's a question from Harry here about what's the experience with management paradigms like Scrum and Agile. Can I recommend a general strategy? You know, I'm always, so some people in our company have used some of those methods for a short while. as far as I'm concerned, different people running groups, as far as they, it's like being able to deal with different kinds of talents in the company, it's groups that work in different ways, fine. If the group produces what it should produce, I don't really care what the internal mechanism of whether they're doing you know, stand up meetings for five minutes in the morning or whether they're doing things where people check in every two weeks or whether they're doing uh, you know, this or that or the other, it doesn't really make any difference. Um, and it's really up to the individual managers of those groups, what they do. In terms of the company as a whole, uh, I would say that um, uh, no, those methods um, have not, we haven't, I mean, I think maybe some of what we do might be described as related to agile, but but I think the, the, the official set of kind of, you do this and you do this and you do this, uh, we don't, we don't follow those things. And, you know, I'm sure there are systems where you do this on a yellow piece of paper and this one on a green piece of paper and so on. Um, we, we, don't, uh, we don't follow those kinds of things. Um, I think that there are pieces of what we do that are a bit unusual, and, but interesting. I mean, one of the things that I kind of uh, do and, and lots of our other managers do as well is kind of the think in public type mechanism where, you know, you're doing working meetings with people. Uh, I'm even outrageous enough to live stream a bunch of these working meetings where we're actually trying to figure things out in, in sort of in real time, where it isn't like, oh, everybody's going to go off and do their homework and then come back with an answer. It's like, look, we've, we've got all the basic uh, sort of stuff we need to make a decision. We've got that kind of lined up. But the actual making of the decision, we're going to just do that as, a, as an interactive thing in this kind of uh, live working session. And the same is true, like, okay, we got to write some key piece of text on some website. It's like, okay, let's just do it. There are five people relevant, 10 people relevant, whatever, let's just do it. And we're just gonna do it sort of in this, in this kind of live session rather than let's delegate it to so-and-so who's gonna hide away and do this and then come back with something and then we'll go through an approval process and so on. It's rather, let's just sit down and do it. Um, and that's been a, 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 a kind of an extreme version of some of these kind of agile methods, I suppose, um, to be able to, to do these kinds of things. And I think it's really, it's a very, very productive thing. I think that the thinking in public mechanism is, uh, it's, it's very educational for people. Um, it's also educational for the person doing it, but, but it's educational for the, um, the people who are watching it done because they get to learn how to figure those kinds of things out for themselves. They get to make contributions to what's going on. One gets kind of instant consensus about things and one doesn't have people saying, oh, I don't know why it was decided that way um, and so on. And so I, I, think it's a, I think it's a great process. It requires a certain amount of sort of quick thinking and it requires a certain amount of, um, uh, I would say, Um, uh, confidence on the part of people doing it of like oh my gosh you know this could go horribly wrong and yeah it could go horribly wrong and with some fraction of the time it does go horribly wrong but that's okay Um, it's it's still a very productive thing Uh, let's see there's a question here Okay, there's so a question from Praveen. Would I elaborate on the distributed nature of our company? Well, I don't know. There's a, there's a picture on the website that gets updated from time to time. It has little, little pins for where we have employees around the world. I think an important thing is that we started doing this 30 years ago. And when the tools were not nearly as good as they are today, we generally didn't use video at all. In fact, before this pandemic, you know, we had had video capabilities for our sort of web conference meetings for 20 something years. And I basically never used it. Um, and the reason we didn't use it is because I always felt that we were doing these meetings and the focus was whatever document or something we were, were working on and people interacting with that. And sometimes I would have 20 people in a meeting and I fully wanted only five of them to be paying attention at any given time because The other people were there because sometimes we might need to know something. And if we have to go find people, that's a big kind of kind of drain on the effort. Now, actually, now with everybody being remote, one of the things that's been quite useful is we often have meetings where we'll have, you know, five people there and 10 people on call. And that means that somebody will, you know, there'll be some, uh, you know, chat session um, that we have. And it's like somebody, either somebody who's, who's a project manager who's in the meeting or somebody who is dealing with logistics who can be reached through the, through the chat sessions, like, can you go and get so-and-so and, and have them join this meeting? And I suspect they go and use chat and go and um, uh, ask that person to join the meeting, and then that person knows they're on call, so they're expected to actually be available for that period of an hour or something, but they're not actually in the meeting. But, in the past, particularly and even now, it's like you can have a bunch of people in the meeting and they don't all have to be paying close attention, and that actually is a good thing because they can be working on something different at the same time. But then it's like if an issue comes up, that is you know their issue, it's like, okay, so and so," and they're like, "Oh, oh, I was sorry, I wasn't paying attention, okay, fine, it's good but it, the time it takes to repeat one or two sentences to bring them up to speed on the question you wanted to ask is very short compared to the, oh, let's schedule another meeting when so-and-so can attend it. So that's, that's a productive kind of thing. Now, in, during this sort of pandemic period, I would say uh, a few more meetings have had video and not many that I've been involved in, but, but some, some people, some managers at the company really like using video for their meetings um, and uh, that's fine. Um, I think I've I've noticed I've I've uh maybe it's an improvement in video quality, maybe it's changing expectations and so on, but I've found some some of those, particularly for one-on-one discussions, more useful than I had in the past. But I think um uh so we have, you know, we have a number of actual offices in different places around the world, um, including in some uh in, well in a variety of countries, both um uh, sort of the obvious ones and not so obvious ones. Um and uh uh it's been very nice in some places where we have um, uh, offices uh officers in the not so obvious kinds of places um, the uh, uh that you know it's sort of big fish in small pond type thing and that's a, that's a really good situation um, and uh a little bit like we have in the case of Champaign Illinois where where it's not you know we're not in a sense competing for talent with um the very biggest fishes so to speak um you know we're a big fish ourselves and that's that's worked really well i would say that some people uh and some managers find it much better to have people concentrated in an office and others have no problem having people be uh be sort of completely remote we usually start off at least in pre-pandemic times we would start off by having any given person uh, initially be at an office for some a month or two maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more to kind of get enculturated into the the company culture, and then they go remote. That's been a more successful thing to have happen. Now, sometimes, for example, we have a a summer school every year, and we often get particularly technical employees uh, who've been at our summer school, and that's been sort of three weeks of usually, except when there's a pandemic, on kind of in-person interaction. And so that's uh, that's something that... um, uh, it's kind of is, is somewhat sometimes a proxy for people being physically at an office for some period of time. So that's, uh, that's another uh, approach. It's a question from Kitcat: Should there be a limit on the maximum number of people in a project or in a meeting? Um, well, you know, I get kind of frustrated when there are more than 20 people in meetings, not because I think the meeting's gonna crash and burn but because I'm just thinking, how much are we spending on this meeting? I have all these people here? Now, if I really am convinced that many of those people are sort of, you know, successfully not paying attention, then whatever. Um, I think in, um, uh, in-person meetings are very different. We, you know, honestly, I do so few in-person meetings with our company every year that um, uh, I barely know the answer to this. It's always very strange when I when I go to like a company headquarters. Uh, particularly, we we typically have an annual uh, technology conference, which is a good excuse for many of our uh, particularly technical um, uh, staff to come to come physically to to be in the office together. It's um, it's often I would say more of a social event than it is a uh, productive event. Although I know some teams run kind of um, uh, uh, retreats at that time talking about uh, what their sort of strategic directions are for the next few years. Um, And I think that uh, I know in in at least one team's case that that's worked really well. Um, And uh, I think, um, um, so in terms of projects, you know, one important thing about projects uh, is somebody has to be in charge. If there's nobody in charge of a project, it's probably doomed. If it's like, well, there's three people in charge, it's like, hmm, that's probably not a good sign. So, you know, it's important to have a person in charge. Now, sometimes, you know, a project might have some people who are sort of actively architecting it. Then there'll be people who are dealing with, I don't know, some aspect of localization to different languages or graphic design or writing this piece of code or doing testing or something like that. And that's, it's kind of scale invariant, the size of the project, just like companies, you know, by the time you have layers of things getting done, the layers where, okay, there's, there's people, somebody's going to test this, okay, there may be five people involved in testing, but only one person needs to be the representative of the testing group when there's a sort of strategic discussion about that project. So to the people who are looking at the strategy of that project, it just looks like, well, it's just one person doing testing. Well, it isn't really. There's other people who are actually doing the work there. But the interface, the sort of the API for that component is just one person, so to speak. So, I mean, in terms of a project, I mean, there are, of course, uh, look, the most important thing on projects is to have the right people working on them. You have the wrong people working on them, they can just spin for years. You know, The right people working on them, they'll magically get done. Sometimes there's questions of if a project is in bad shape, if it has been spinning for years, or it has been like, why isn't this done? etc., cetera, et, cetera, et cetera. You et know, How do you layer in a new set of people? Can you do that? Do you say, okay, we're just gonna change the set of people. Uh, you know, there are a variety of kinds of fancy footwork that have to be done to take a project that has been floundering and kind of bring life to it. And sometimes I've seen at work, you just bring in one good leader type person um, and the people who are there who are already in the project are like, okay, great. Now we know what to do. Now we have a direction. We can go off and execute well. And sometimes you have to kind of go deeper and you have to basically say, look, this project is going to get moved to a different team. Um, I would say that's the minority case, but, but certainly I've seen that happen. And um, sometimes, you know, one of the frustrating things when a project is floundering is why is it floundering? You know, can you dig deep enough to find out why it is floundering or why something isn't happening? You know, why is this project six months late? Well, you know, maybe because the wrong people are working on it, maybe because it's harder than you think. The most likely reason is because they're doing the wrong project, as in you thought You know, it was, we're going to build, you know, we have an intention to build this thing. But then it turns out, as you get into building it, you realize, wow, there's this piece of that project that's really, really hard. But we had this plan. We're going to build this thing. It's got five components. One of them is really, really hard. We've got to build the whole thing. We're going to build all those five components, including the one that's really, really hard. Well, that's probably not the right thing to do probably the right thing to do is to zoom out a bit, think about what is the overall strategy of this project and say, can we get around that really hard component? Do we really need that really hard component? Or is there a way of achieving the sort of strategic objectives of that project without having to bash your head against that particular really hard component? Now, one reason that gets difficult from a management point of view is once the project is underway, it's you know under steam, it's got a team working on it, that team are the ones really thinking about it. And there's no point at which it goes back. That team will just say, we're going to get it done. We're going to take that hill. We're going to do it. And they don't come back and say, turns out that hill is a lot harder to take than we thought. You know, what should we do? That, unfortunately, that's a process that that is is hard often to extract because people are like, no, 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 we really can do it. And so that's, we, we try to have kind of enough kind of senior level project reviews, at least with some frequency that you can kind of detect those issues. And and usually what happens when I'm involved in these things, it's like, I have to have a sense, how difficult should this project be? I mean, if if people are just saying, if I just say, well, why isn't this project done? And it's, look, it's a six month project, sorry. Um, You know, it's going to take six months to do it. Then it's silly for me just to say, why isn't it done every two weeks? Um, But on the other hand, Uh, you know, if one, I have to have a good enough idea of how difficult the project is, that I can tell if something has gone very wrong. If the thing that should have been a few week thing turns out to be a many month thing. And and sometimes that's a really difficult thing to figure out. You have to drill a long way and you have to have really pretty good understanding. I mean, particularly with technical projects, you know, I, I, obviously I'm a very techie guy. And um, uh, so for me, Kind of CEOing the techie sides of our company is in a sense doesn't is is not so difficult because with these projects, in principle, I can dive in, drill down, get down to the show me the code type stage. I kind of feel for people who are non-technical CEOs of companies that have a lot of technology in them because they can't do that. You know, they're, they're although I would claim that when people say to me, oh, I'm a poor, non-technical CEO, I can't understand things. My, my point of view is, actually, you really, you can understand it. You might not be able to write the code, but you can understand the strategy of what's going on. And I've, I've seen that over and over again in our company. For example, a lot of project managers that we bring in do not have particularly technical backgrounds. But the thing that I always, I always kind of uh, get a, a warm, fuzzy feeling when I see this is somebody who is, has a pretty non-technical background, but they're very organized and so on a good kind of good sort of uh, uh, sort of raw material for project management it, there comes a point where they understand this project at the strategic level better than the technical people who are actually implementing the project so although they might not be able to write a single line of code for the project they know what all the functional components are and how they all fit together and what the kind of technologies are gonna be used for this or that piece better than technical people. And that's always a good thing. And I, I do think of that when non-technical CEOs say, oh, 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 I can't do that. You know, I, My CTO says this and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I just don't understand and so on and so on and so on. But you know, when projects get into trouble, the ability to really dive down and see the details is pretty important. And sometimes I would say, You know, even in our company with the age it is and, you know, the fact that I've been CEOing for, well, a long time, 35 years now. um, You know, it's still the intensity of drilling, sometimes necessary to find problems with projects, amazes me. I mean, it it is, you know, people... Sometimes with the best of intentions, we'll just say, oh, no, no, don't worry about that. You don't have to look at that part. You know, it's all going okay. It'll be done next week. It'll et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when you really, really drill, you sometimes find, oh, my gosh, I just found this lump of stuff here. You guys have been trying to drill through, you know, you've been trying to get through this lump of stuff. That's why your project is five months late, because there's this lump of, of difficult stuff and you haven't figured out a way around it, and, oh, well, you know, if I'm uh, kind of um, feeling on top of things, maybe I can figure something out. But at least I might have a more strategic, kind of more zoomed-out view of what the point of the project was and might be able to say, well, actually, we can avoid doing that part and kind of reroute the road so we don't have to go through that, that difficult part. So I think that's, a, that's an important um, uh, piece to this. I think... Um, Okay, there's a question here from Seema. Is there a suitable period of time one must devote to reading about previous innovations and developments related to the theme of a project before actually jumping into the implementation? Interesting question. I mean, I find you can end up doing tons of book work and then your brain is kind of sort of oriented only towards what people have done before. And then you completely can't see new things to do. That's a bad situation to be in. So, but on the other hand, to just sort of blithely go forward and say, I'm going to do this uh, and I don't know anything that anybody's been done before, that's a mistake. That's silly. That's not leveraging uh, what what people have figured out or, or whatever else. So my approach tends to be I kind of conceptualize some project that I want to do. I maybe try and read sort of the obvious things about it and the things that I can understand. Then there's a whole bunch of stuff I can't understand because I don't know all the details. I haven't thought about the area well enough. Then I typically start actually doing the thing myself or we start looking at it, talking about it, whatever else. And as we do that, we understand more about what kind of the contours of this problem actually are. And and then uh, after I've kind of understood more or less how to do it or how I think it should be done. And I come up with a, some hypothesis, oh, we should do this, whatever else. Then once you understand it for yourself, then you can go and see, okay, what did other people do for this project? And then you're much better equipped to say, there's this whole set of things and that whole set of things. You know, something happened to me just a week ago. So i have been working on natural language understanding and um, these kinds of things for many, many years. And I've been working on... Um, uh, things about kind of formal computational systems for many, many years. Well, there's this particular area of uh, that sort of a a merger of formal systems and and semantics, language understanding, these kinds of things. It's a thing that emerged in the early 1970s. It doesn't really matter what the details of it are here. Um, but anyway, I had been kind of, I'd sort of looked at it a bunch of times. I'd never really, never really had done much for me. I didn't really see what the point was and so on and so on and so on. And then I was looking at it again and it's like, uh, because I think I really understand all the pieces that are around it. And I felt like I was about to reinvent the thing. And so I went and really looked at it in detail and it's like, oh my gosh, these guys just went off in the wrong direction. This was a bad idea. And, you know however many hundreds of academic papers and so on, and and some products, actually, too. And it's like, I am pretty sure at this point, I'm really quite certain this was just a bad idea. I don't have to look at it. Um, And, uh, you know, I I, let's see if there's any detritus, so to speak, left over that's worth looking at. But the fundamental thing was just a bad idea. It's not going to work. and uh, so, but I had—I would never have gotten to the point where I can pretty confidently say this is a bad idea, um, w- you know, without um, without all of the developments of having understood all this stuff myself. Sometimes this, um, uh, yeah. So, so I mean, that's a—it's. Uh, I think the the most you know, when you when you solve problems, one of the things I've noticed is you know, sort of head for the center of difficulty. Don't kind of try and walk around the edges and say, oh, the big problem is way too difficult. We can't deal with that. Let's just try and, you know, try and sort of uh, you know, poke at it from the corners, so to speak. And, and let's try and take the roads that people have already taken that get somewhere near the center of difficulty, but they're not that close. But we'll take the roads that people have already taken. My observation is what usually works best, both in technology and in science, is figure out what really is the center of difficulty? What really is the key problem? And try to and find that as, as well as you can for yourself and then say, okay, well, maybe that problem I can't solve, but I can with some method that I know or whatever else, I can solve this problem that achieves a large fraction of what, what needs to be achieved for that sort of most difficult part of the thing. And that's taking a different road. It's not taking one of the roads where somebody's already got some distance towards that kind of center of difficulty. It's just saying, let me take what I know from the outside and try and sort of parachute in and find how close I can get to the sort of center of difficulty rather than taking one of the existing roads. I found that's a really good approach. And it's like, you know what you know, you have a certain set of things you know, you have a certain set of methods you know. You may not know those kind of roads that take you some distance in towards that sort of center of difficulty that you would have to learn those but you do know a bunch of methods that you know. So an obvious thing to do is identify what the center of difficulty is, try to understand that well, and then say, given the methods that you know, can I beat my own way through the jungle, so to speak, to get there, perhaps in a different way than people have done before. So that's always been a quite successful thing for me. Okay, a couple more questions and then... then um, um, uh, Then I should wrap up for today. Okay, so Praveen asks, is it possible or practical to avoid mid-level managers while scaling up the company by creating sub-founders who work just like the founder at the founding stage of the company? Well, okay, so one thing to understand about companies is companies are imprinted by their founders. And, you know, try as you might to make a company that does not somehow map into sort of the contours of your own personality, it's probably not going to work. And you know, that constrains the type of people who are likely to be successful working with you because they have to sort of map into that same sort of personality pattern. Um, and it constrains kind of how uh, sort of the, the, the overall culture of the company is going to be a projection of some kind of the founder typically. And so I think this question of, do you have people who kind of work like the founder? Well, yes. With the same sort of, I would say, uh, uh, you know, sort of corporate cultural values or something, the same kind of approach to things. Yes. I mean, you know, I like to have a diversity of specific approaches, but in terms of the general, we're going to make great products and we're going to spend a bunch of intellectual effort doing it and so on and so on and so on. Those things are part of at least our company culture and are very much um, uh, sort of a thing that you'll see throughout the company. So I think in terms of the sort of the mid-level managers. So, so one point I might make about sort of the mid-level manager situation is, you know, in our company, I think it's fair to say that, that everybody actually does stuff. There's, there's basically nobody who is just a manager. You know, people are doing things and then supervising. Maybe they have other people who either work with them or are advised by them and managed by them who are doing, you know, doing sort of extending what can get done. But, you know, there's some companies, I think, where there's particular level of middle management, which is neither involved in overall strategy, nor involved in actually sort of quotes doing the on the ground work, but is mostly involved in sort of the, 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 the sort of the connecting the dots type thing. And in, in our company, we really don't have I'm I'm trying to think, I don't think we have much of that at all. I mean, we have project managers, but that's different. Those are people whose job is to make sure that all the pieces of the project get connected together correctly. They're not the people who are doing personnel management of the people working on that project. The sort of personnel management tends to get done more by this sort of guru type people who are themselves working on actual content rather than the people who are making the mechanics of the projects work well. Uh, You know, both the roles, but they're different roles and they don't have to be packaged together. And I think for our company, you know, a sort of cultural aspect of our company is that people all do things. There aren't people who are just managing. And I I tend to think that the just managing kind of mode of, of work is, I think, Other companies I know have sort of tried to reduce the ranks of the just managing folk, um, because it's well. I think it's more satisfying for people to feel like I produced something, I made something, I created something. Most people like that. Um, I mean, they can make a plan for a project, things like that. That's fine. That's making something. But the just sort of telling other people what to do kind of kind of thing. Um, uh, is is uh, you know it's, it's I don't know somehow somehow I think it's nice for people to actually feel like they made something and um, or figured something out or whatever else rather than that they're just a, a cog in a machine that's sort of just providing sort of transmission of mechanical uh, work or something to another part of the of the machine. I think um, uh, so. You know I I, I guess. Um, um, can everybody think really like the founder? There are a number of paradoxes to that. One paradox that's bitten me a lot is, you know, at this point I'm pretty experienced. And so there's sort of this challenge of, you know, there are things where I'll know exactly what to do. And there, there won't be, you know, I just have much more experience in a bunch of things than, than other people might have. And so it, it's inevitable that I can do it faster. And then the question is: so when should I do it, and when should it be delegated to somebody else to do? And, um, you know, what, when do you get in this, you know, if everybody was like the founder, so to speak, of the company, then, uh, you know, that's sort of paradoxical because the founder probably started first and they'll kind of build up more experience. And so there won't be that kind of equality. I think for me, for example, in our company, uh, you know, we, I would say, uh, don't, you know, some companies, okay, so they're companies where everybody thinks they're a founder, so to speak. And there is a very kind of, uh, oh, what can I say, sort of a, a a founder prima donna type type thing going on. And some companies have a lot of trouble with that. You know, particularly in Silicon Valley, there's lots of kind of, um, you know, people who are just, you know, they sort of a big part of management is just keeping all these all these big personalities at bay. I think we have plenty of big personalities in our company, but somehow they don't have quite the same manifestation of um, sort of the, the, they'll have opinions about their domain, they'll have things, but, but it won't be sort of the same kind of, I want to be the, the top dog of, of, of everything all the time. I mean, there's, there's you know, if you have a, a, a company that has leadership, there's going to be the top leaders and there's going to be the not top leaders. And I think that's a, um, um, uh, that's something that, um, uh, you know, people, if you say, well, everybody's going to be a top leader. Well, I mean, you can do that to some extent with title inflation. You can call everybody a president if you want to, just like there was a trend for calling everybody a vice president a while ago, but that doesn't, um, that doesn't really get you anywhere. Um, I think it's, it's, you know, you, you have to recognize that there's going to be sort of a top leadership and there's going to be people who are working. Uh, you know, following the vision of the top leadership. If everybody thinks they have their own separate vision, just like the top leadership does, that's probably not going to work well. I mean, sometimes I've told people who work for our company, you will never be happy working for somebody else. You've just got to start your own company. Other times it's like, fantastic. You're really entrepreneurial. Hey, here's this business unit, go run this business unit. And you're largely, you know, you're only loosely coupled to other things that are going on. I would say that another another feature of companies like, like ours, for example, is, you know, how do you sort of promote talent, so to speak? I mean, we've been very fortunate that we have just a, a wonderful flow of, of um, new talent into our company, often quite young people. And um, it's, uh, for me, it's kind of, uh, you know, when do the 20-something-year-olds get to take over the company type thing? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see to what extent that's that's a thing, and, and for us, the, the sort of bizarre thing because the company's been around a while is that a lot of people we are hiring who you know were born after our company was founded, after our product was was launched, all those kinds of things, and sometimes who've known about you know our stuff since they were really quite young, um, and that's that's kind of an interesting dynamic in terms of sort of sustaining a culture for a company. All right, let's see. There's a question here. What are the most tiresome things in your job as a CEO? Um, you know, for me, I like creating stuff. I kind of was projecting that onto everybody else a moment ago in terms of what people sort of want to do, but I like building stuff. When, when I'm doing things where I feel like I'm making something, I'm making a piece of a product, I'm building up, a, I'm in, in figuring out how to get a project done, I'm figuring out some strategy, I'm creating something. Those are satisfying things for me to do. Uh, even sometimes when I'm helping a person to, you know, when I'm talking them off a ledge and getting them to see that this is a, a good direction for them, that those all feel like they're productive things. They, they make me uh, sort of uh, feel, um, uh, feel like I'm, I'm spending my time in a worthwhile way. I would say one of the things that, um, you know, often CEOs of companies like mine uh, you know, it's common for the CEO to be very involved in kind of the front lines of selling things. I made the decision when I started our company just not to do that. It's like, okay, we might sell more if I was the main pitch person, so to speak, and the main person closing the deals and so on. But I just don't want to spend my life doing this. And I'm going to bring in people who I think can do it well. And I'm going to step back from that. And you know, part of the reason I don't personally like that is because it feels much less productive. You know, you're trying to make a deal. There's some counterparty. The counterparty it's like, I know what the deal should be. It's like, you know, it's like, look, I can see what your company should be doing. I can see how what you're doing should fit in with what we're doing. There's a real win on both sides. But, you know, the other side is like, oh, well, we can't, I don't understand. We can't do that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. For me, that's a frustrating situation because I feel like you know, I could spend a lot of effort, like, let me explain it to you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other side is like, uh, well, we decided to budget something different this quarter. Sorry. It's like, okay, then, then that's all wasted. You know, there are other people who have a different approach to the things they're doing, who, who find it very interesting to kind of do this kind of, you know, more sports-like kind of activity of, you know, can we make this work? Can we close this deal? Can we do this kind of thing? Not my kind of thing. I don't really like that. I would say that um, uh, the, um, uh, certainly some of the infrastructure operations of our company, like IT systems and things like that, I have been, uh, they're not my, You know, we, we've actually been rebuilding our whole ERP system to use our own technology. It's gonna be very beautiful and uh, probably we'll sell it to other people too. It'll be a very nice new generation of that, that type of thing. Um, we finally did that after many years of kind of struggling with, with uh, sort of other other software for enterprise software for doing that. Um, and part of the reason perhaps we were struggling as much as we were is that I'd never really paid attention to that stuff, you know, how the transaction processing works and all that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I suppose in a sense, you could, you could tag me as a slightly, I don't know whether you'd say irresponsible CEO or something, but there are things I just don't pay that much attention to. And where you know, the trick is really the things you don't pay that much attention to, are they gonna hum along okay? If they are, it's a big win to not pay attention because then you have that time to spend on something else. And then the trick is to know that thing that looks minor, is it gonna blow up into a big mess that you're gonna have to waste a lot of time on? That's that's an important thing to be able to identify if you can. And you know the thing about a company like ours and, and a general advice about companies, Is there are things we do that we're really pretty unique at doing you know a bunch of technology developments a bunch of content developments a bunch of vision and so on we're really pretty unique at those kinds of things you know we're not unique when it comes to i don't know uh having uh dealing with renting office buildings or something we're not unique when it comes to the way that you know our payroll system works or whatever so And and we're not unique when it comes to some other kinds of things. And so in a sense, it's like, what stuff are you really going to pay sort of is really kind of CEO driven? It's very, very unique. And what stuff do you get people who know how to do that stuff really well? And it's just like, just do what you normally do to do this because it's going to be fine for us because we're not really any different from other companies in that regard. And sometimes I see people... uh, you know, who say they're going to start this company, and they're going to do everything themselves. Sometimes they're going to say, I'm going to do nothing myself. I'm going to contract out everything. I'm going to have the." But both ends are a mistake. I mean, in our company, you know, we have contracted out very little. Um, we, in, in terms of, you know, to outside companies and so on, you know, we have our own in-house, you know, graphic design, legal, this, that, and the other, you know, all these kinds of things. Uh, that's been a huge win. The main reason why that can be a problem, let's say you're doing graphic design. You know, we have a pretty large graphic design team. And, um, uh, you know, one of the things that could happen is that you say, well, our work is lumpy, you know, like, like, oh, we'll have, you know, this big product we're building and there'll be nothing for them to do for six months. Turns out this just doesn't happen. By the time the company is above some scale or if you manage things properly, it just doesn't happen. But the advantage to having an in-house, let's say, graphic design team is those people they really understand what we're doing, and they, you know, and and they can. It's not just oh, let's make this thing pretty. It's like let's actually make suggestions and lay it out and and you know suggest this doesn't make sense, etc., etc., etc. It's something where you really get a lot more value out of having a team. And you know, in, in our graphic design team, I think most of the people know Wolfram Language. I know um, the person who leads that team is a. He's a very good Wolfram language programmer, even though his background is pure graphic design. Um, the, uh, I think you know, these, are, these are things which you get if you sort of integrate like that. Um, but so you know, I would say that my, my strategy as a CEO is if it's tiresome to me, delegate it. I think mean, the other point to realize is typically if it's tiresome to me, it's, it's something I'm probably not gonna do that well. Now you know occasionally there are things like some big uh, sort of uh, uh, kerfluffle with um, with people where it's like oh gosh do I really have to deal with this these people are acting incredibly childish or whatever else. It so happens that I'm interested enough in people that I don't really resent that that much. It's just like okay let me chalk it up to another funky thing that I've had to had to deal with and I learn a little bit more about the human condition or something and I learn yet another weird thing that can happen that i've never seen happen before okay so i think last question for today from uh, jim um uh perhaps it's opportune how do you stay so intense and focused after all these years when you could have retired much earlier what on earth would i do if i retired it would be deadly i think uh, people often say retirement is the most dangerous uh, you know if you if you sort of rank uh Risks at a medical level, retirement is the most dangerous thing you can do. No, but seriously, uh, why do I do what I do? Because I like doing it. Um, Because it's um, now, you know, having said that, I have been very fortunate in that, you know, I've sort of built this platform for doing things, but the specific things that I'm doing have changed over time. So, you know, I spent a bunch of time over this last year working on fundamental physics very much using the platform that we've already built, and now very much feeding back from those ideas about fundamental physics into extremely practical things that we're doing with distributed computing and a bunch of other areas. Uh, I think somebody had asked uh, about practical applications of the physics project. Yes, there are some quite wonderful ones. They're not about physics. They're about things like understanding distributed computing, understanding things about blockchain, understanding a bunch of different areas understanding things about actually uh, new ways to think about program execution and so on. These are things that have come out of the conceptual framework of the physics project that I never would have guessed would have come out of there. But it kind of follows the thing that I've done in my life, which is this uh, uh, this kind of oscillation back and forth between basic science and technology. And often I can't predict, you know, I'll do a bunch of technology build out, then that will allow me to do some basic science. Then it turns out that basic science We'll have feedback for more technology, and often I can't see past those barriers. I couldn't. If you'd asked me, is the physics project going to be useful for anything? Uh, I would have said, I don't know. I don't don't think so particularly. Um, but it's turning out it's it's super super useful, and and even you know a new method for solving partial differential equations that um, is coming out of it. Just a whole bunch of things that are that I never would have guessed would be. Uh, Come out of the sort of paradigm that we built for the physics project is informing a lot of other kinds of things. But um, so, why do I stay sort of intense and focused? Because I really like what I'm doing. And part of the reason I like what I'm doing is because we're always, you know, I feel like I'm building this tower and it's really fun because I built a new floor to the tower. I can see a bit, a bunch further. Oh, look at that really cool thing off in the distance. You know, we can go get that one too. And and then we can, you know, incorporate that on the tower, build even higher and see even further. And that's, it's really, it's really fun. And, you know, to me, it's very satisfying that the things I've done over the last probably 40 years uh, altogether have really been, uh, I would say, very successfully building on each other. It's not like I can say, well, I did that in the past. That's gone. Now I'm doing something different. It, It didn't really matter. I did that thing in the past. I could have done the thing I'm doing now anyway. For me, it's very satisfying, I don't know, I'm sure it's different for different people, that you know, I can really build this tower. It's like I'm looking back at things I did in, in 1980 and I'm realizing, gosh, that was interesting and that contributes a brick in this tower that I'm now able to, to, to produce uh, today. Now, having said that, there are a few times in my life where I felt like, okay, I did this thing, I tied it in a bow, it's finished, now I can go on to the next thing. For me, that thing that's tied in a bow and finished has ended up being a brick that I can build on top of, but I can see that it can be satisfying just to, you know, tie it up in a bow, finish it, send it off. It's done. Um, but I think, um, uh, you know, in, in, um, so, so I would say that the, um, the number one reason for sort of staying intense and focused is because I like what I'm doing. And I think that, um, that's partly a question of the environment that I built in terms of the company and so on. And there's just a lot of people I, I enjoy working with associated with that. I find it sort of satisfying that I can take ideas that I have and can turn them into real things in, you know, there's a mechanism for turning them into real things that to me is, is, is very satisfying. Um, I would say that, um, uh, that's, um, that, that's, that's what I uh, would say about that. Now, you know, it's like, if I were to retire, what would I do? You know, the thing that's funny is that in my life, you know, I've sort of alternated between doing science and doing technology. Um, I've also alternated between doing the thing that was my day job and then doing a hobby, so to speak. And um, uh, I have to say that essentially every one of my hobbies has turned into a real thing in the end. And, you know, I could have said, well, I was doing science, but I was doing business as a hobby, and then start companies, and then I'm doing companies, and I'm doing science as a hobby, and then that turns into big projects and so on. And so it, it's, it's, um, uh, it's a thing where there's um, um, the, um, the, the, the sort of this, um, this, whenever I'd say, gosh, you know, let me just go and have fun. Let me start a hobby. Well, pretty soon that turns into a real thing. Um, I would say that, you know, it's advice to other people. I mean, it, if there's a thing you really like doing, it's like, you know, just do some of it because you'll be very productive there, probably much more productive than things where you're like, oh, I don't really like doing this. You know, I will say another thing about, about sort of the, the, um, the rhythm of things that I do is there are times when I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm still doing this you know, for example, when it comes to explaining some of our technology to people, it's like, I'm like, sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, somebody asked what I don't like to do. Here's an example of something. It's like, I've been telling people the same thing for 30 years. You know, when are they going to get it? That's frustrating for me. And, and sometimes I think, uh, you know, that, that's, probably the, um, yeah, that's probably the crisp answer to what's the number one thing I don't like doing that I actually end up doing is, is like, explain the same things to people. It's like, I've written the same thing. I'm not gonna write it again. And, and you know, I've realized from a bunch of things I've done, particularly with the physics project, that sometimes there are things that one does that if one didn't do them oneself, it will be a really long time before they got done. I mean, I think the physics project, maybe 50 years. I don't know. I mean, maybe there are things where people are kind of lapping at the edges and they would have done it. I don't think so. <laughs> You know, I think it's one of these things where because of a, a weird set of uh, of coincidences and circumstances and so on it was like right place right ideas you know ability to do it etc 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 so we get the project done and same is true with a bunch of technology we built it's kind of a you know we built it and because we could at this time we built this tower that allows us to build a bunch of things that are not you know that where mostly there's no you know, there's the big tower, and then there's a sort of, there's not much around it. And we've been just building and building and building this tower taller and taller and taller. And the question is, when's the city going to arrive? And, you know, I think that period of time may be very long. And that's one of the challenges, you know, right now, I sort of talk about it as artifacts from the future, you know, people who are using our technology Uh, They do things where they show it to their colleagues and it's like, oh my gosh, I imagine one day you'd be able to do that, but that looks like an artifact from the future. And it's like, that's the stuff we're producing. And there's a question of sort of how do you, how do you communicate artifacts to the future? You know, if the city already existed around our tower, it will be a lot easier, but it's kind of a tower that's um, uh, somewhat out in the wilderness where You can, you know, if people who climb up the tower, they can see a long way and do all kinds of cool things. But there are a lot of other people who are like, tower, tower? I don't understand any of that. And and that can get, um, uh, but it's something where, for me, the fact that the things I've done, you know, as as I've tried to build this over the last 40 years, the fact that there's sort of one can see the, the things that one has done in the past that now contribute to what one has today, that's a very, to me, a very satisfying thing. Um, and, oh, I was, I was addressing what would I do if I were um, uh, uh, retired. And um, I don't know, I've, I've been sort of saving up some things. It's like, well, if I wasn't doing this, I might do that. I, I would say that um, uh, there's a whole lot of writing of things and explaining of things that I feel like I should do. And I'm, I'm going to start a big project on one of those things very soon, uh, which you might view as a, uh, it's a retirement from some of the things I've been doing right now, although I'll end up going on doing those too. So anyway, I should. Um, uh, uh, having talked about retirement, I, I see I've got only a few minutes before um, I'm jumping into a piece of day job work of a uh, design review. I don't know what it's about um, of uh, something. Or I think it's about um, uh, visualization functions for from Language. So um, uh, which will be live streaming, so you can. Um, you can check out the day job if you'd like to. All right. Well, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Um, and um, our uh, schedule of these live streams is, um, uh, yeah, I should say, please follow us and so on. For people who are actually in motion being entrepreneurs, we have a program called our Eureka program, which is kind of a, a program for getting people really involved with things that we're doing. Um, I just mentioned that. Um, I would say logistically, um, uh, our live stream kind of thing is on Fridays, I'm doing science and technology Q&A for, for kids and others. And then every other week, I'm doing a business and innovation Q&A like this one. And in the off weeks, I'm doing a Q&A about history of science and technology. So anyway, thanks for joining us. See you another time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit StephenWolfram.com.